We're going to be in Exodus 15 this morning. While you head that way, I just want to ask you, how great is it to be able to be a part of a baptism? I hope that's not lost on you guys, truly. I mean, I, I think that for us to, to see someone give verbal, and not just verbal, but physical witness to the testimony of what Jesus has done. I'm a friend of Jason's. I know his story. I know his life, man. For him to be willing to show you guys that Jesus has buried the old Jason Hildy and raised a new man in his place, a man filled with the Spirit of God, is amazing. So I hope that's not lost on you. I hope you won't overlook what you witnessed today. Uh, you might have had a great week. I had a pretty good week. Maybe yesterday. I don't know if you guys watch college football. Maybe your team won. My team beat number one Alabama, uh, which is pretty fun. But here's the deal. What we saw Jason do is more important. And honestly, it's more fun than that. And if it's not, just that's free today. That's not even a point of my sermon. just want to allow that truth to just maybe reorder your priorities a little bit today. Because when a person is brought to life in Christ, anything can happen. And the optimism we have around that should out, outweigh any other optimism in our lives. So in a much smaller way, Jason's baptism also gives me an easy segue this morning into Exodus 15. Because last week in Exodus 14, we watched God's fledgling nation, Israel, participate in their own baptism. They too passed through the waters. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that that was a baptism experience for them. That they are now a living testimony to how Yahweh doesn't just set people free from sin, but brings them all the way into life. It's not just about giving you a clean slate to try again, but the gospel brings us all the way into Jesus' righteousness for us. So in the interest of understanding what's happening in Exodus 15 today, we'll go back to the last two verses of chapter 14. I want to read those, and then we'll move into chapter 15 today. If you're in a scripture journal, we're going to be at, on page 68, the very bottom, but we've got the verses for you on the screen as well. Okay, this is the end of last week's passage. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Well, what do you mean, thus? Well, he made them cross the Red Sea. He parted the waters. He drowned the Egyptians. He set them free forever. That's what happened. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, corpses floating in the water on the banks. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, chapter 15, verse 1, the word then, so that's why we need to know what happened before. Then, right after that, right after they crossed the sea, the people are still catching their breath at the edge of the water. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So the majority of our time today is going to be looking at a song that Moses wrote and proclaimed over the people. Now, I would be willing to bet if you've ever read the Bible in a year and you got to Exodus 15, you might have skipped it, right? Because when your Bible starts to change the format and you see those weird indented different phrases and you go, I don't know what any of this means, and it doesn't rhyme in English, and it honestly doesn't make a ton of sense or mean a lot to me, and so we tend to skim it. But today, you're welcome because we're going to dig deeply into these verses. And we're going to try to learn from God's people, their very first experience of passing through the waters from death to life, their response to God will in some ways be a model for us. So Moses sings this out. He says, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. He hasn't just won, he won big. The horse and his rider, or if you have a different translation, the horse and his chariot, Yahweh has thrown into the sea, tossed him in. Yahweh is my strength, says Moses. Yahweh is my song, and now he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. This is also my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. 
If you've been with us in the book of Exodus, you will recall that God has been pretty serious about people knowing his name. Not just learning about him or what he could possibly do, his attributes, his traits, his character, but he has been emphatic from the time that he told Moses his own name, Yahweh, in the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. Yahweh continues to introduce himself this way. He continues to use his name. He wants to be known personally, and he wants his reputation to belong to no one but himself. And so as Moses lifts up his voice, as he breaks out into song, he continues to use God's personal name, not just the word Elohim or El in Hebrew, but Yahweh, the name of God personally. Now what I think is amazing about this, if you can just imagine what this feels like for a minute, you've got this massive caravan of people. As we've said a couple of weeks in a row, 600,000 men alone which means probably around a million and a half people total, plus all of their livestock, their wagons, they've got stuff bound up in their clothes. They're still only two days removed from leaving Ramses on the Nile Delta and traveling out into the wilderness following the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud during the day. They get to the edge of the water, they turn back, the waters close in, just like you saw the waters in the baptismal stirred this morning, there's waves left over. Okay? The, the bodies are being pushed up out of the water and make, make it to the edge of the shore. People are probably still bent over. They're breathing hard. Some of them that were at the back, nervous that they weren't going to make it through the water in time before God brought everything down. Of course, he did it perfectly. Not a single Israelite died, but all the Egyptians are gone. And over this sort of low rumble of people catching their breath and checking on each other, where are the kids? Is grandma still safe? Moses maybe climbs up on a rock. Maybe there's a tree there or there's a hillside. He can get up a little higher than the people and he begins to sing out over them making up this song as he goes. This is not a song that's recorded anywhere else in the Bible before this time. God did not give this song to his people. They haven't been singing it on Sundays at 9.15 for a few years. This is brand new. And it's remarkable to me because if you think about who Moses was in Exodus 4, what was his primary fear? Do you remember the one thing that he thought he couldn't do? Yeah, he couldn't get in front of people and open his mouth. Scared to death of that. He tries to dodge God's calling, a thing you and I might say, this sounds awesome. God's going to use me to lead a people, to lead the charge against this oppressive government, and we're going to overthrow it, and God's going to make this new nation. And Moses is like, I think I'm going to just stay with these sheep out here, if that's okay, God. But God has a different plan. I believe that Moses' willingness to speak up and sing is directly a product of his experience. I cannot overstate to you how transformative it was to the people of God to pass through those waters. It was not a cartoon. It was not a movie. It was a life and death. And probably, given the most narrow portion of the Gulf of Aquaba, which is about where they crossed, we're talking a 7 to 15 mile crossing. So it probably took them about two hours from the time that they went down into the, into the water, like walls on either side of them, until they came out on the other side. Two hours of wondering, is this water going to collapse? Is this it for me? Are those Egyptians going to catch us? Are the people in front of us going to get stuck? Are we going to have to stay here? Their hearts are pounding. You and I experience adrenaline in small doses, right? Like you might get an adrenaline rush when you have to pass somebody on the highway and you barely make it back in your lane before oncoming traffic comes. Have you ever had an extended experience of that? I mean, these people are probably adrenally exhausted, shaking a little bit, unable to catch their breath, scared to death that they, they don't have everybody with them that left the edge of the water originally, bent over, breathing heavily, spasming some of them on the ground, and over the top of this crowd comes Moses' voice, bright and clear, I will sing to Yahweh. When I was a kid growing up, we used to listen to Christmas records. My parents had an old record player that I think they had inherited from somebody who had long ago died in the Coleman family tree, and we would play these records that were sing-along style. 
Bing Crosby, guys like that. I'm probably dating myself a little bit here, but some of the Christmas classics, you probably have the Spotify playlist. If you don't, I'm sure Spotify will force it upon you in December 1st. But we had the actual pieces of vinyl that you put in the machine and had to set the needle down exactly right in the grooves. And they would encourage you to sing along. Bing Crosby would come on in his Bing Crosby voice and he'd say, all right, kids, next we're going to sing Santa Claus is coming to town. Here's how it goes. And he'd start to snap and the jingle bells would come in in the background. This is Moses' call to worship. I don't think he's just saying these words to sing to Yahweh. He's, he's bringing the people with him. I will sing. The question that's hanging in the air is, will you? Will you sing with me? The Bible says that they do. They pick up Moses' tune. Yahweh is a warrior God. We know him personally. His name is Yahweh. He is my God. When the people sing, Yahweh is my strength, it has a lot more meaning to them, right? When they're lying on their back in the mud with corpses around them. Some of them just a couple of feet in front of those Egyptians who were covered up in the water. They themselves could have been there. Now, they don't qualify for that, right? They're not in rebellion against God. We know that God's not vindictive. He didn't barely get by by the skin of his teeth. But their lived experience is that there were people just a few yards behind them that didn't make it, and they did. And they're feeling that, and they're breathing that way. Yahweh has become my salvation is not a theoretical concept for these people anymore. It became true that day in the water. Yahweh has truly handed these people their lives back in a way that they could have never done for themselves. Let's keep reading. The song goes on. Verse 4. The people continue to sing, Pharaoh's chariots and his host Yahweh cast into the sea. And Pharaoh's chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, which is glorious in power, your right hand, Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble, like hay. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, and my desire will have its fill of them. You can guess what that desire is if you've ever studied war, rape, pillage, murder. This is what Pharaoh wants to do on his way into this box canyon, Exodus 14. He's prepared to humiliate these people because he has been humiliated by their God. He said, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. Verse 10. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. In verse 6, the song moves a little bit. It changes its perspective. The first five verses of this chapter are sort of the people singing to one another, almost in a call-and-answer style, about who God is. We do that occasionally when we sing our modern worship songs. Some of the songs that we sing are, are us just proclaiming the goodness of God, what God has done, who he is. But in verse 6, the song shifts its focus from telling others about who God is to speaking to him directly. Beginning in verse 6 through verse 10, the people are telling God what they have seen him do. Their worship goes even one step closer to the heart of God as they approach him directly, personally. Now, my favorite chapter in the Bible is John 17. If you're not familiar with John 17, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. Jesus prays over his disciples at the very end of his life, the night before he's going to go to the cross and die. Um, so let me ask you this question, and I promise this has to do with this. Have any of you ever watched the TV show Lost? 
before. Anybody? Are you brave enough? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry if you watched Lost. I watched it all. All the seasons. I watched them every Thursday night when they came out. They used to come out on Wednesday, but then the ratings fell, so they moved it to Thursday night. But I would watch it with my dad. It was one of the things that we stayed connected over when I went to college, because it started when I was in high school, and then it finished, I think, my sophomore year. You may not know this, and if you've never watched Lost, I think it's on some streaming service. You can save yourself some pain. There's really only seven episodes of Lost that matter in the whole series. Everything else is filler because the guys who made the show admitted at the end that they didn't know how they were going to finish it. They were almost like rolling the dice. It was like Mad Libs, but for a multi-million dollar TV show. The only episodes you have to watch of Lost are the season, or the series, fin- or excuse me, yeah, the season finales. That's the word I'm trying to say. So you can watch the end of season one, one hour, and you know everything that happened in the other 15 episodes. You watch the end of season, or episode, yeah, season two, the last episode, you know everything that happened in season two. John 13 through 16, the four chapters right before John 17, are kind of like a season of Lost if it was Jesus' ministry was written by J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof, okay? I think it would end exactly the same way. Probably in their version, the disciples would be in an underground bunker and Judas would be a black smoke monster, but those would be the only differences. But in John 17, Jesus does exactly what God's people do here in Exodus 15. This is why I'm telling you this. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about God. He's doing that to edify them, to prepare them, to equip them for what's coming. He's trying to tell them he's about to die, and they do not get it. They cannot comprehend at all what he's talking about. They don't even have a category for God to go to the cross and die for people. It's wild to them. But in John 17, with no warning, Jesus has done speaking to his disciples. The Bible, John, says that Jesus looks up to the heavens and begins to speak to God directly. And that's what happens in this song, in Exodus chapter 15. The people go from talking about the Father to speaking to him directly. And not only does the song change in that way, but it goes from concrete to figurative. You may have picked up on this. Whereas the first five verses detail specific things that actually happened, that God did against real people in real time, beginning in verse 6, these verses become more figurative, especially 7, 8, 9, and 10. The people are now realizing that simply saying to God what he has done literally is not sufficient to express their hearts. Have you felt that before in worship? Have you struggled to put words to how God has been good to you before? You say offhand that you love eating at a certain restaurant or you love your pet, and you probably do love both of those things, but in a way that cheapens your ability to say to God the love that you have for him. All of civilization, people have struggled to put into words the awe that they feel from big things. For pagan people, that's aimed at Um, art or it's aimed at civilization or war or geography, tall mountains, big canyons, wide oceans. For God's people, they have always struggled to put God's majesty into words. And it starts right here in Exodus 15. They reach out to these natural phenomenon that they've experienced in an attempt to quantify who Yahweh is to them. They say God's fury is like a wildfire ripping through dry brush, that his strength is like hurricane force winds causing the sea to stand up almost like a blanket he's just tossed off of himself. Verse 10 echoes verse 5, that not only did God hold the water back, but he was able to control it perfectly to crush his enemies at the right time, and that they sank like bricks, like stone and lead. And they're right, but the point of the song is the next two verses. Verses 11 and 12, a tribute to God, who he is exactly. And at a glance, they're going to ask a question, and I think if you're like me and you're reading this quickly and you're skimming it, you're going to be tempted to see this as figurative language. It's a rhetorical device, right? They're asking a question that they definitely know the answer to, but I don't think so. Remember who these people are as we read these two verses. Remember, they are still very Egyptian in culture, in nature, in philosophy, 
and I believe they are truly asking the questions that they sing to God and to each other in verses 11 and 12. Here's what they say. Who is like you, Yahweh? Who among the gods? What gods? What are the only gods that they know about? The gods of Egypt. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Not the dirt, the planet. Like the planet you and I live on, this giant spaceship that's hurtling through the galaxy, orbiting the sun, it follows God's commands. It's like a well-trained puppy in the hands of Yahweh. When he says leap and throw and jump, it does all those things exactly right. That is what the people are beginning to understand. I don't think it's rhetorical. I think these Israelites, just 48 hours removed from life in the shadow of the gods of Egypt, are truly asking They've seen Yahweh dismantle those gods with surgical precision. He makes it personal to them. But they're still culturally Egyptian, and they're processing out loud, which of the gods is like this? What other god could we attribute this to? Now, in a few chapters, they're going to find a way to make a mistake and put all the attributes of God onto an idol that they make for themselves, but I don't want to get ahead of us here. For the point of this exercise, they are asking, could it be Hapi, remember Hapi, the god of the Nile who floods the riverbanks once a year? Can Hapi, the god who can make the floodplains increase in water by a couple of feet, could he be a god who could control a sea like this? No, it couldn't be him. What about Heket, the frog goddess, or Geb, the goddess of the earth? Could they have sway and, and, and open up the earth like Psalm 77 says when the people crossed through the waters that the, the Egyptians were not just swallowed by water but the earth itself rent itself open? And swallowed them? Or Apis and Hathor, the god and goddess of sexuality and sensuality, represented by a cow and a calf, could they do this at the edge of the Red Sea? What about Sekhmet? Sekhmet is supposed to be the Egyptian god who's most like Yahweh, in that he controls life and death, he controls healing and sickness. Yahweh's deliverance of Israel from death into life at the Red Sea makes Sekhmet look about as medically divine as the nurse at summer camp. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yahweh is doing open heart surgery in the back of a moving ambulance when he brings his people through the Red Sea and Sekhmet is passing out band-aids and lollipops. Who is like this Yahweh? Not even Amun-Re, the pinnacle of the Egyptian pantheon, or his avatar, the Pharaoh, had or ever would do anything like the Red Sea crossing. Israel is asking the right question. This shifts their perspective. These people who were worried hours ago at the edge of this water. Did you bring us here to die where there are not enough graves in Egypt? And it's beginning to dawn on them exactly who they're dealing with. Moses has had this experience already. Moses came face to face with God in a figurative sense at the burning bush and spoke to him. Moses aired his grievances. Moses told God, I'm scared about these things. I don't want to do this. I don't really trust you. I'm not sure why I should. The people of Israel haven't made it that far yet. They've had a couple of worship services along the way, but corporately they have not begun to embrace the covenant between them and God and the severity of God's expectations and his ability to fulfill his own expectations in them for himself. They reached the right conclusion too. You, Yahweh, stretched out your right hand. In other words, you flexed on these Egyptians and the earth swallowed your enemies. This planet is your tool, it is your servant, and when you choose to use it as such, it is your weapon. And then in verse 13, the song changes again. Now it goes from what has just happened to prophetic future events. Though the song stays past tense, the lyrics begin to explain things that have not happened yet. We'll pick it up in 13. 
You, Yahweh, have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Now that's true and will continue to be true. It's already fulfilled. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Not quite yet, but they're on their way. The peoples have heard, not the Israelites, all the other people who live around them, and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Probably not yet. It's been a couple of hours since they crossed the water, but this will eventually be true. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Again, not quite yet, but it's coming. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away, except they haven't yet because God's people haven't even arrived yet. And when they get there, at the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges, they do a terrible job of driving them out and they stay for way longer than they should. But the point is the same. God is using Moses, his prophet, to speak out over the people and welcome them into singing about a future that isn't quite realized yet. And you and I do that every Sunday in this room. We sing about where Jesus is taking us. We sing about what we'll do when our life is hard, even if we've had a great week the seven days before. We attribute to God who he is, what he's capable of, where he's taking us, and how desperately we need that. And we're not lying when we do it. We are banking on a God who exists outside of time who can be sovereign and good and right and whose nature guarantees that in the moment when we need his character to not fail us, it won't. He will be who he says he is. Verse 16, now terror and dread fall upon them, these other peoples that live around the Israelites, because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone. Interesting, very interesting, this picture that's painted. Until your people, O Yahweh, pass them by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. The people get quiet. They stand still and they wait because you don't mess with God's people. That's the reputation that Yahweh earns at the Red Sea. Now, we get future tense language. You will bring them in. You will plant them on your own mountain. That's going to start in Exodus 19. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. There's some foreshadowing to the tabernacle that the people are going to get around Exodus 25. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. And he will. You may not know this, but the Red Sea crossing is the most referenced story in the Old Testament. You take the, all the other books of the Old Testament, and most of them, if not all of them, mention at some point how God delivered his people from Egypt, but specifically the way that they crossed the waters. There are many, many psalms. The book of Micah tells the story. Lots of the prophets, hundreds of years down the road, call back to what God did at the edge of the Red Sea. Specifically, two examples. In the opening chapters of the book of Joshua, All of the people who live on the Sinai Peninsula and even southern Canaan hear about Israel and Yahweh a long time before they arrive. There's a reputation that precedes God's people as they move into the land of promise. More specifically, one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, God's people make some mistakes. They're foolish. They're going to war with the Philistines. The Philistines, you ought to do some research on them. They're very interesting. They're a migrant people who come from sort of the Greco-Roman area, and they have a lot better weapons than anybody who lives in Canaan, so they take over quickly. They're able to beat back these Bronze Age warriors with iron and eventually other things, and so they gain a huge foothold in the area that God has promised his people. One of the times that they go to war with God's people, God's people decide to use the Ark of the Covenant, which if we're not thinking Noah's Ark, big boat, we're thinking like treasure chest, less piety, but same idea, lid, box, stuff inside, and God has committed to his people that he will travel with that Ark wherever they go, that his presence will be in their midst. He won't just be a God who has an idol that they worship and hope that somehow the phone line between that idol and the realm of the gods stays connected. He'll dwell with them. 
Well, they decide that this battle isn't going so great, and so they bring the Ark of the Covenant with them to the battle. They didn't ask God what he thought about that, and they tried to use him to take advantage of his blessings, which is not a great way to interact with the Lord. And so they lose the fight. And not only do they lose the fight, they lose the Ark. They lose the thing that God said he would stick around with. What are they supposed to do now? Their God is a captive of another nation? Well, you know Yahweh is not going to play games with that. So the Philistines take the ark, they put it into a temple that they built to their own pagan god named Dagon. And Dagon is always depicted as a human. The Philistines were sort of humanistic, self-worshippers. So they made all their gods, not trees and sun and moon and stars and fish and stuff like that. They made them people. So Dagon's this carved guy. He has a head, he has arms, he has a body. And they take the ark of the covenant and they set it in the same room as Dagon. And then the priest clocks out for the day and goes home. When the priest shows back up in the morning, the Philistine priest, the idol of Dagon that looks like a man has been knocked onto the ground and the head and the hands of Dagon have been severed clean. And nobody's been in that building, but it's where God's ark is. So the Philistines get spooked out, right? They're like, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't going to work. Some of them start to get tumors because they're keeping God's ark instead of giving it back to his people. So they put it on a cart. They slap the oxen on the rear end and hope that it makes its way back to Israel, and they abandon ship on it. As they do that, they have this sort of Viking moot of Philistine tribal leaders, and they discuss what they're going to do, and they call back to this story. They say, wait a second, is this the same Yahweh that brought his people through the Red Sea? And they all, their eyes get big, and they go, oh, we should have known better. We shouldn't have messed with him. This is not going to go well for us. The period of time between 1 Samuel 5 and Exodus 15 is 300 years. 300 years later, this is the story that defines the God of Israel to all the other people of the earth. It is that important. It's that big of a deal. Now we wrap the song up with a little bit of repetition. Okay, verse 19. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. A side note to you, there's a little bit of debate among the scholars on whether that's actually the final stanza of the song or if it's just a little bit of repetitious exposition, but either way it's true. Verse 20, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, also the sister of Moses, also the little girl who followed Moses in his um, tarred-up basket at the beginning of Exodus, also the little girl who stepped out of the reeds and said to the daughter of Pharaoh, hey, I know a great wet nurse for that baby, and then recruited her own mom to nurse Moses and get paid by the Pharaoh's daughter so Pharaoh could grow up in his house. Crazy. Same lady. She's doing well. Seems like she's kept her faith. She's now a prophetess. She took a tambourine in her hand. Don't know where she got that. I guess that was important enough to bring out of Egypt. And all the women, all the women, went after her with their tambourines, and they began to dance. Several hundred thousand women with tambourines. Not my idea of a good day, but maybe you like tambourines, okay? The rattle, the shaking. Anyway, feels like VBS to me. So Miriam sang out the chorus of the song. She repeats the first two lines that Moses sang. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I don't know how familiar you are with contemporary Christian music, but like the contemporary Christian music top 40, none of them have to do with God killing anybody. But this is it, man. This is the banner they're going to wave. Because if God did not, they would be dead. That's the life and death situation here. If God had not intervened, it's not a matter of inconvenience. It's not a matter of persecution. Oh, it would become more uncomfortable or some policy or law might change so that Christians can't speak up the way they're supposed to. This is life and death for these people. And because God exercised death on their old masters, they can have life. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that you are in a life or death situation. It's not about convenience, ease of access, or personal comfort. This is about that without God's intervention, you would be dead. But instead, someone else is dead in your place, and now you get to celebrate life. This is an amazing worship song. Maybe we can pay Tyler to turn this into a song we sing on Sundays. Nobody would ever want to come to our church again, right? We're in the middle of worship. We all start singing, the horse and his rider are dead. People be like, I got to get out of here as soon as possible. I got to leave. Okay. These verses give us an important detail, okay? And I'm, I got to move quickly here for the sake of time. I cannot dig all the way into this today, but I understand that there are some people, some places who struggle when they encounter a woman in the Bible who is a prophetess, a woman in the Bible who speaks for God, a woman in the Bible who leads. If you were to read Micah chapter 6, Micah seems to remember that Miriam was not only a prophetess, but she was one of the three leaders of Israel with her two brothers, Moses and Aaron. This lady was speaking for God. She was leading God's people. Okay, and I get in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, we have some verses that tell us about how men and women can interact in worship. But what I'm telling you is they're not contradictory. Micah 6, Exodus 15, 1 Timothy 2, not working against each other, all working together. So that's the tension that we have to navigate. We have to find a way for all these things to be true together. We can't pick a side and play the Bible against itself. And because there is a lot more to say about Miriam than I have time to say today, I'll point you to this. I don't do this very often. But if you'd like to hear what I have to say about Miriam and Deborah and other women who lead and teach and rule in the Bible, you can find a sermon on our website from September 13th. Let me say that again because that was clumsy. September 13th, 2020. It's called, You Want Me to Do What? Because it's about submission. And it's from Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. You can find it on the website. You can listen to that, watch it, whatever. If you have questions after that, I'll answer them. We don't have time today. Okay, so Miriam's a prophetess. She's leading the, the charge here. She's keeping the worship going because Moses probably has to get down off the hillside or the rock or whatever and begin to make plans to go on to the next stop on the journey. And we get that story. That's the last vignette here, and it's where we'll land the plane today. God's people leave the edge of the Red Sea, very likely a salt water body of water, not a place where they can necessarily camp for a very long time, and they're going to travel on to a place called Elim. Elim is where chapter 16 will pick up. Let's finish the chapter here, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. I like that the Bible says that he made them do it, because they're tired, you guys. It's been a long couple of days here. Sure would be nice to camp, but Moses is like, we got to go. God's got a destination in mind. we got to move here. So they went into the wilderness of Shur, They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water, which is a long time to not have water when you're in the desert and you're marching on foot. When they came to a place called Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. For that reason, they named the place Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, what are we going to drink? And he cried out to Yahweh, and then this is wild to me, and I can't really explain this to you, but the Bible says it happened, so it did. Yahweh showed Moses a log, which is a funny thing to imagine. God's like, come here. See this log? Pick that log up. That's all you need to do. Or a tree. Your translation may call it a tree, okay? But a piece of wood. And he said to Moses, it's implied, throw it in the water. And Moses did. He threw the piece of wood into the water, and the water became sweet. Was this a sarsaparilla root? Is this the origin story of root beer? I don't think so. I think God did something that required some faith, for his people to follow through, and I don't need to know the science behind it, but it happened, and God's people survived. There the Lord made for his people a statute and a rule, and he tested them. In other words, he put a little pressure on them. And he said, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord who is your God, and if you will do that which is right in God's eyes, giving ear to his commandments, 
and keeping all of his statutes, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, and I am your healer. And then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Those seem like random details, right? Now when you're walking in the desert, that's important. That's shade and good water. That's why that matters, and that is a testament to God getting his people there in one piece. But I love, if you look again at verse 26, that God is doing here exactly what Jesus did in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. God is preparing his people for what's coming. He hasn't given them the law yet. They don't have the Ten Commandments, or as the Hebrew would call it, the Ten Words yet. They haven't arrived. But God is saying, something's coming. If you will obey, if you will follow me, it will go well for you. I will protect you. I will heal you. I will keep you safe. I will sustain you. That is covenant language. Now, it's hard in a way to take these people seriously, isn't it? They just crossed the Red Sea. They just walked out of worship, and now they're mad at God. Three days later, it's as if this thing they've experienced it doesn't even exist anymore. But maybe you can put yourself in their shoes. Maybe you can remember a time that you ran out of something in your life. Maybe you ran out of water on a long hike, or you've run out of food because you planned your week poorly, or you've run out of prescriptions, right? That's a scary moment where you can't get to the doctor for a couple days, and you're not sure how that's going to affect your body. Or you may remember during the early days of COVID, running out of toilet paper. Yes, I was at Costco in March of 2020, and I kid you not, I saw a lady come around one of the aisle, corner aisles, okay, she's going fast in her big cart, and she turned so hard that one of her big Costco toilet paper packs that's sitting at the top of this tower of stuff that she doesn't need, but she's buying because she's scared from watching the news, it fell off her cart onto the floor, and like without missing a beat, a man just appeared. I don't know where he was, but he just showed up, he grabbed it, and he said under his breath, yes, and then he was gone, just like that. <laughs> fast, just fast walked away in the crowd. And she was like, where, what? And I, don't, I didn't know what happened and I didn't want to lose my spot in line, but he was just there and he took it and it was God's providence in his life, I guess, okay? <laughs> but we hoard stuff when we're afraid. We fear being out of something. We try to plan ahead. Israel has none of those choices. They can't. They can't actually carry water with them for very long. They may have some jars, some vases, some bowls, but to carry three days worth of water for a million and a half people? No way. And now they're out. And it's been 72 hours since their worship festival by the sea. And they've decided, again, that Moses is not actually a great prophet, but is a bad leader. They have water, but maybe their water is dirty or it's salty. There's something about this pool of water at Mara that makes them unable to drink. It's so bad that they named the place Bitter. That's what the footnote in your Bible will tell you Mara means. It's actually the same name that Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, chose for herself in Ruth chapter 1 after all of her family members were killed. She named herself Mara, so you have a little bit of connection there and some context on that Hebrew word. The water is bitter at Mara, but more importantly, the people are bitter at Mara. They have decided that they know what's coming and God is not good and he won't follow through for them. But what have they seen Yahweh do? Have they not seen him overthrow gods? Personally, specifically, laser precision. Did they not see Yahweh overthrow a king even? Were they not just emancipated from slavery? Did God not just win a battle by fighting with water and wind? Yes, 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 and yes. They sang just a few days ago, and probably they're still humming it in their head because there's not a lot of other songs bouncing around in Israel at this time. This is like the only song, therefore it's the number one song in the nation. They're humming along with this, the horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea, but now they're thirsty. And now they're so thirsty that their experience has begun to override what is true. It's ridiculous, right? What would you say if you were there? If you're in this caravan and you hear 
Beth Esazel, or whatever her name is, behind you from somebody else's family in the caravan, and she's grumbling and mumbling against God. Wouldn't you turn around and go, hey, what gives here? Were you not with us at the Red Sea? Don't you still have salt on your toes from crossing that river or the bottom of that sea, that seafloor? Look around you. Wake up a little bit. Their grumbling seems inexcusable, but you and I are really not that different from them. I'm not that different from them. Maybe I can't speak for you. Oftentimes, we sing the same truths about Jesus that Israel sang about Yahweh, the Father, and we did that in the last 45 minutes in this room. Yet, the question we should ask is, where will our hearts be three days from now? Will they be any different than the people of Israel at the banks of Mara? Even three hours from now, when you finish watching your NFL game or you wake up from your afternoon nap or you get off work tonight, will there be even a splinter of the majesty of Jesus still rattling around inside of you? Or will you have completed your objective at 11 o'clock this morning, not to think of it again for seven more days. Will you love Jesus on Tuesday morning? Did you love Jesus last Thursday in the regular hours of your life? Does your Sunday worship have anything to do with the rest of your life? What about on a bad day? What about on a work day when things are going horribly at the office and then you realize that you forgot to follow through on a commitment that you made either to your family or your roommate? When you begin to feel your inner rhythm accelerating to a dangerous pace so that you can rush through your day trying to make up for lost time, doing all that you can to compensate and correct without a single thought for Jesus and his love for you. Church, the problem in Exodus 15 is not that God's people need water. The problem they have is that they believe that Yahweh does not love them anymore. They forgot about him. They forgot about his love, they forgot about his mercy because they are hurting and they are weak and that is what we do when we are hurting and weak. Our nature draws us towards self-sympathy. We commiserate with other people who have had a bad day as well and nobody brings Jesus into it. Sometimes we do this, we lose our perspective. All we can taste is bitter water. Maybe you're not getting what you want in your marriage or you're sick of being single. You fear your future for some reason. You can't seem to outrun your past. Anxious, depressed, isolated, and certain in your heart that Jesus must have forgotten about you. We feel ourselves get stuck, don't we? We lose faith first, and then we lose heart. It's impossible to be courageous when our instincts tell us that we're on our own, left to fend for ourselves. We cry out with Israel, my life is bitter. And then what do we do? Are you ready? I'm going to tell you the secret today to overcome bitterness in your life. You've made it through 40 minutes of Old Testament exposition to get to this point This is it. This is the secret to overcoming bitterness. It's a two-part process. When you are bitter about the life that God gave you, the very first thing you should do is nothing. And I don't just mean don't do anything. I mean stop your urge to fix. Stop your urge to run. Halt your feet and stand. What did Moses tell God's people in Exodus 14 when they were panicking, sure that God brought them into this canyon to die? He said, all you have to do is be still. Pardon my French, but you need to shut up and you need to stop freaking out and you need to be quiet and watch God and he will come through. He doesn't fail people. It's not hard for him to give you what you need. It doesn't stress him out. It doesn't strain him. He will do it. Trust him. Wait. Just wait. Because you can't sweeten your own life. You can't unbitter yourself. You can act that way, but all that's going to do is drive those nails of bitterness deeper into your internal coffin that your soul is stuck inside of. You're going to go to life group and you're going to be scared to death to be the only person at the dinner table who actually isn't sure if God is who he says he is. And so you're going to fake it. You're going to lie to yourself. 
you're going to lie to other people, you're going to lie to God, and you're going to get more and more bitter. So just stop. Rest. Don't run anymore. The bitter water of Mara is so helpful to you and I because there is not a thing in the world that these thirsty Israelites can do to turn that water into fresh water. Nothing. There ain't a scientist in the bunch who can do any kind of chemistry to force that thing to go right. Their only choice is to wait and see what God will do. And they don't need an attitude adjustment. They need to be forgiven. That's what they need. That's what will restore to them an understanding that God loves them. It's the only thing, is to be forgiven, to be loved. Loved again, restored, accepted, drawn in by God. When God's people could not see past their personal crises, when they believed that God's providence had finally met its match in a putty, muddy pool of salt water, right? Oh no, what's God going to do about this mud puddle? We're going to die, I guess. God didn't plan ahead far enough. God forgave them. He said to them with his love, with his actions, it's going to be okay. He used a tree. Okay, The ESV calls it a log. It's the same word. Yahweh added a tree into their bitterness, and their bitterness became sweet. And like most of the Old Testament, Exodus 15 is hinting at the coming Messiah. If you can't see it, I'm going to try to make it clear for you. The Messiah who you and I know as Jesus Christ of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, Peter said this in 1 Peter 2. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, that we might live to righteousness, and it's by his wounds you have been healed. The Christ, who according to 1 Peter 2, bore our sins on a tree, that we might die to the bitterness of sin and live to the sweetness of righteousness. Yahweh promised to be Israel's healer. We just read those verses, right? If you'll do what I say and stick with me, I will heal you. I will keep you safe. But Jesus kept that promise for us because we are healed by his wounds. To quote the King James Version, by his stripes. It's vivid. So step two in the secret formula to overcome bitterness is to accept forgiveness. First, do nothing, and then accept God's forgiveness of your bitterness against him of the wickedness in your soul, of your sin that wants to run from the God that's trying to heal you because he's not healing you the way that you like to be healed. You would like to be healed differently. You feel that you know better what healing would look like, feel like, and what that experience ought to be. So you gotta stop first. That's why it's step one. You gotta get out of that cycle and then you need to accept what he is giving to you because you and I are forgiven by Jesus. When we grumble or complain or question his goodness, all we have to do is receive the work that he has done for us. And if I haven't been clear with you yet, what Jesus will do is he will throw his tree into your bitter water and make it sweet for you. The tree of Christ turns your bitterness into life. The tree that Jesus died on makes your bitter water a source of life for you. He transforms you. He changes you. He doesn't give you necessarily what you thought you wanted. He doesn't just make you happy and slap you on the back and say, good luck. He transforms the substance of your life, the thing you hated and you were trying to outrun. He turns that into something new. He gives you what you could never gain for yourself. The bitter water of Mara teaches us that we are fickle, Our faith is often flimsy, but that the forgiveness of Yahweh and his healing providence are good. He is good. He teaches us that he is good even when we are convinced that he has forgotten us. So here's your application today. If you want something to go home and do, sing 
with Moses. Sing with Israel, the Lord is my strength and my song. Sing truthfully, if it is true for you today, he has become my salvation. Not he could save somebody somewhere sometime, he's mine. He did it for me. That has never been truer for anybody in history than it is for us in Jesus. And church, don't just sing it in here. Sing it out there. Sing it at the bitter water and watch what God will do. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your people in Israel. Thank you for keeping the most important promises you ever made, that you would send a Savior. And Jesus, thank you for being that Savior in spirit. Thank you for bringing the death and the life purchased by Christ to us. We worship you, God, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I ask, God, that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives today. Oftentimes we live in dualism. We separate our lives. We have parts that we consider to be holy. We have parts that we consider to be secular. And we're okay with the secular things being bitter, being angry, being short-sighted, being selfish, as long as we can put on the right mask before we come back into the holy place on Sunday or at life group or at Bible study. And God, would you do a work in us to collide those two worlds? And would you show us that your salvation is holistic? It leaves nothing to chance. It leaves nothing out. You want every part of us. For those of us that are bitter today, God, would you give us, by the power of your spirit alone, not our own self-discipline or tact, God, but would you give us, by the power of your spirit, the ability to pull the emergency brake on all of those internal monologues that are panicking and trying to solve problems and trying to make our lives better and questioning whether you're real or whether you're good or whether you're for us. Let's just halt that. And then out of that quiet peace, God, if you can get us there, would you, would you lift our eyes up to Christ? Would we look to you and receive forgiveness for our bitterness and remember you've been with us the whole time. You don't step away. You don't need a break. There's no days off. A love like that is amazing, God. It deserves to be sung about. And so as we sing now, I pray that you'd be with us, that you would inspire and encourage us, God, and that we would leave this place filled with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.